now message number 24 in our series through Matthew. This message is entitled, Dead, Dark, and Dumb. So we are in Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 34 in chapter 9. And to get started, I'm going to read verses 18 and 19. While he spake these things unto them, Behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. So verses 9 to 17 that we looked at this morning give another dialogue section between miracles, and we've seen how that uh, Matthew has done this. He gives us a group of miracles, and then he gives us um, what you might call a discipleship section or a teaching section or something of a dialogue section that sort of comes in between. Uh, and we have certainly have seen some some themes carry through um, these miracles and, and dialogues that we have seen. Now, in in what we witnessed here earlier part of chapter 9, we can see that there is a growing conflict. Matthew is sort of building this up somewhat slowly. There's a, there's a growing conflict and a growing opposition to Jesus as he proceeds in his ministry. We're seeing um, the Pharisees and other uh, rulers, leaders of the, of the Jews that are, are being more and more offended um, by Jesus' actions as, as well as his word. Um, and at the same time, we're noticing at this point a growing popularity. So among the more common people um, of Israel, there's a, a great fame of Jesus that's spreading about and, and a great multitudes that are following him around at this time. And you recall we are in what sometimes scholars refer to as the year of popularity, the second year of Jesus' ministry during his um, Galilee ministry before he turns toward Jerusalem. So we're seeing these two things that, are, that just keep sort of increasing and growing together. On the one hand, much popularity as, as many join these crowds that are following Jesus. And then on the other hand, a growing opposition um, toward Jesus as he proceeds. Now Jesus continues to speak and to act with authority. And, and Matthew is, is bringing that out. And, and when, I, when I say that Jesus is acting with authority, um, what I mean is that He's, the result is he's giving messianic signs, and he's also revealing his deity. And so we see Jesus, for instance, giving commands um, and, and performing miracles that are, that are things that um, have really have never been seen, especially not on this scale. We're coming up on, we'll not get to it tonight, but we're coming up on another one of those summary statements where um, all these crowds come to Jesus, and Jesus heals them all. All, all the afflictions, all the whatever the, the problems are that, that they have. So even though we can go back in the Old Testament and we can find certain parallels, we can find certain miracles worked by Moses, we can find certain miracles worked by Elijah and, and, and Elisha and, and, and some of the prophets, and, and we can find some of those things in, in parallel, so to speak, but not on this scale, not to this extent, and, and not all of the particular miracles that Jesus works can we find from before. So it, it certainly is, is um, Jesus is showing him, himself to be um, a, a person 
that you cannot be neutral about. And so as we continue to read through these accounts, we're going to see Matthew also emphasizing faith as Jesus emphasizes faith and the necessity to believe in him and who he is as the Messiah. Now the question in the previous section that we looked at uh, that came up about traditional fasting was one that provided an opportunity for Jesus to express that he is bringing in the new. He's bringing in what is incompatible with the old. And when I say incompatible, I don't mean that it's, that it's not um, in, in, in line with, in the sense of, of being a, a revelation from God, something that comes from God's word that expresses um, his will in some way. It certainly is that. It's a continuation and a, and a completion in that sense, if we're talking Old Testament and, and New Testament in that sense. But if we're talking Old Covenant and New Covenant, what I mean by incompatible are that, that these, are, these two covenants are not something that we can be in at the same time. So Jesus is showing that the new and the better um, is actually thematic in, in the letter to the Hebrews, and especially the new and better covenant than the old covenant. So Jesus came to fulfill the old and to establish the new. And the call to follow him, the call to believe in him, the call to, to, to repent and receive him is a call to come out from the old and to enter into the new. And as could be expected, there were those um, who were um, greatly joined to all of the ideas and, and traditions that had grown up around the old that did not want to give it up so easily. Now, as we look at verses 18 to 34, we've got this last group of miracles that Matthew gives us, that, and this comes just before another large section of teaching. Now, it's not as large as the Sermon on the Mount, but it is, it's larger than just a few verses of, of dialogue that comes between some miracles. So, this, this is another group of three miracles, although um, in, in one particular account, there's two miracles that are actually performed. In another account, there's one miracle performed in a sense, but on two people. And so you, you, you might want to count it up differently. But, it's, but it's, still, it's still following after this pattern that, that Matthew has been using in this gospel. And these miracles, though he doesn't make use of the fulfillment language that, he, that we've seen him use before, Though he doesn't make use of that fulfillment language, it's clear that these are messianic signs, and it comes out another way in this particular passage than, than using the fulfillment language. And these, these particular miracles are actually connected by the theme of restoration. There's a, a restoration of health, there's a restoration of life, there's a restoration of sight, and there's a restoration of speech. So this passage, once again, continues to feature the growth, the fame, the popularity of Jesus as, as um, the reports of, of, of his miracles spread throughout the region, the crowds continue to, to throng around him, and also his opposition, as we're actually going to see it come to its, to, come to its greatest height to this point in this passage. So as we look at this, we are going to take the three episodes here um, in, in, in turn. So verses 18 to 26, where Jesus restores life. In verses 27 to 31, where Jesus restores sight. 
and in verses 32 to 34 where Jesus restores speech. And we'll talk about some of the significance of that as we get through it. So we're going to start with the first and the restoration of life. And that begins with verse number 18. While he spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. Now, this ruler, we learned from the other accounts, was named Jairus, um, something along that line. Um, And he was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, this means that he was sort of an administrator of the synagogue. And typically, those rulers of the synagogue were not teachers themselves. They, They were not rabbis. But they oversaw um, the facility of the synagogue. They were responsible for organizing um, the Sabbath meetings that took place there um, weekly. They also selected those that were going to be readers because they, part of the, those Sabbath gatherings would involve um, readings from the, from the law and the, and the prophets and, and the writings. And then there would also be teaching, which would be, generally speaking, was an exposition um, of the, the law of the Torah, the reading that had been given there, and it, and it usually was connected with that, the reading of the prophets and such. And so there was a, there was a teaching section. Um, and so they would select the readers, the teachers. Sometimes they, they might, uh, there may be some traveling rabbi that was coming through that they would invite um, to, to, to take part in some way. And they would, they would also be responsible for judging the, the teaching. Was it a was it a, a good and, and um, sound teaching according um, to the word? Was it erroneous or something like that? So, so this is what this man was. Um, and I, and I had, did read about some, uh, some of the archaeological ex- excavations there around Capernaum. And they found the foundation of a, of a synagogue and, and even um, what seemed to be a house right beside it. And so um, could very well have been that that, that was his, his house by the synagogue. He oftentimes... Uh, at least one of those rulers would, would live um, in that proximity to take care of the, of the synagogue. Uh, it could have been, but we certainly have no idea about that. Now, the word for worship that Matthew uses essentially means to kneel down, to, to bow down, to kneel before. So he, he, this ruler of the synagogue comes and, and bows before Jesus and tells him that his daughter is at home. And, and when you compare the accounts with um, Mark and, and Luke and, and the words and the language that is used, essentially what I understand is that um, grammatically he, he could be saying here that, that she is dead and, and it could be that he means she's dying or is at the point of death or is sure to die um, or that she is already dead and that's, it's not entirely clear and I don't think it's a major um, issue at what he means because by the time that Jesus gets to his house it's very clear that she has died by the time that he gets there and, and it, it is clear as it comes out in the text. Um, from Mark's account also we learn that this, this daughter was 12 years old that was um, at home dying or, or already dead by this time and so he requests that Jesus would come and would lay his hands on her and, and raise her back to life. Now, at, at this point, we don't have record of Jesus having um, raised someone to life, um, but yet this man has faith and believes that Jesus has this power and requests that he come. And then we're told in verse 19, Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. Now, we're not given 
Uh, Matthew gives a very abbreviated account of this, since we're not given really any, any back and forth or anything. Jesus stood up to follow him, and his disciples come along. Now, in verse 20, it says, And behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood twelve years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. So um, Mark at, at this point describes that when Jesus gets up to follow him, that they're having to pass through this large pressing crowd. So it, it kind of, if you've ever been in a, in a, in a very large crowd, um, you, you know, maybe you went uh, Black Friday shopping. Um, back in the day, the way that we used to do it was, you know, you got there at 5 a.m. and you had your gloves on and you, and you were taped up and you're ready to go because you know you're going to get in a fist fight before the end of the day. No, hopefully you didn't experience any of that. But if you've ever had to sort of jostle your way through a big crowd, and uh, um, that, that's, that's the, the description that Mark gives us of that is that's the way that it was like. They, they were pressed in, and they're sort of pushing their way through this crowd of people. Well, Matthew notes that there's a woman that, that comes up to him from behind. She obviously is, has been trying to get to Jesus. She's described as having um, a, a bleeding disorder, and we're not told the exact problem um, that she's facing but she had suffered it for 12 years and it would have caused her a number of problems for for instance her bleeding disorder would have made her perpetually unclean according to Leviticus chapter 15 verses 19 to 33 and her uncleanness um, had certain consequences she was she would not have been able to enter into the court of the temple according to Numbers chapter 5 and verse 3 she could not eat of any of the consecrated food if she happened to be among, of the family of the Levites. I don't know whether she was or not. Leviticus chapter 7, verses 20 to 21. She also could not observe Passover or other feasts because of this. Uh, Numbers chapter 9, verses 6 to 13. So the Old Covenant had several um, prohibitions that she would have fallen under her. She would have been considered defiled and just continuously defiled because she had suffered this um, disorder for 12 years. Now, Luke also, in, in his account, describes her as being medically incurable. So, the Old Covenant, though it provided certain prohibitions, and it also provided certain steps that were to be taken in a case of someone that was unclean, they're, they're to be separated um, from Israel in, in certain ways, the Old Covenant provided no treatment for her condition. There, there was no solution for her condition. There was essentially no hope of her ever being restored to the community of Israel and Israel's worship. So ultimately, this, this woman, in the case that she was in, she was without hope, you might say religiously, and years of bleeding had no doubt left her weak and sick and anemic, and I think, I think it's Luke also that adds that, that she had spent all that she had on doctors and, and they had only made her worse, and, and that sometimes is the case even today. Um, but nevertheless, so she's become impoverished. She is cut off and separated from her people. She's continuously unclean, there, and, and there's, there's nothing for her. There, the old covenant gives her absolutely nothing. She has no hope. And so she comes up to Jesus from behind, and, and everything about this description is that these are very deliberate actions on her part. 
And she touches the fringe of Jesus' garment. And most likely what would be referred to here um, would be the, the fringe of the, of the, of the, of the prayer shawl or, or something of that nature um, as described in, in places like Numbers chapter 15, verses 38 to 39, or Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse number 12. These were the fringes on the borders of the garments um, that they were um, commanded to wear according to the Old Covenant um, that, that was to remind them of the Word of God um, and His commandments. And then in verse 21, For she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. So Matthew explains her motivation. She thought that she would be healed by doing this action. And some have suggested, well, she, you know, given her state, she didn't want to um, create an embarrassing situation for this um, rabbi that, that had this healing power and, and such. And there's all sorts of ideas. We're not told those sort of things. Um, but she did come up from behind, and her plan, it seems to be from the start, was to touch the fringe um, of his garment. Verse 22, But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. So Jesus turns to her and, and speaks to her. He certainly could have um, kept going. Um, she was made whole by uh, touching the fringe of his, of his garment. But he turns and, and faces her, and he speaks these comforting, marvelous, comforting words, even by addressing her as daughter, which might seem somewhat maybe commonplace, but, but what does it do? It, it affirms her place in Israel. Just taught her, be of, be of good comfort. You're, you're not, you're not um, forever exiled. You're, you're not forever cut off. Be of, be of good comfort. And he, and he pronounces that her faith has healed her. Her faith has made her whole. And he also tells her essentially to... Um, to be of good comfort, thy faith hath have made her whole, and the woman was made whole from that hour. So she was cleansed apart from any ritual, apart from any offering or sacrifice or um, any, uh, any immersion or um, any, anything at all. She was healed by faith, and she was then to go her way. Verse 23. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making a noise. So from that point, Jesus continues on to the ruler of the synagogue's house. And there's a, a crowd there, and he, he mentions these uh, musicians and, and, and wailers or mourners. Essentially, um, these were what would be considered professional mourners. Um, the musicians and, and wailers that would um, mourn the dead, uh, I think, for seven days was, was the custom, and they would, be, they would be hired, and so they would play the sad music, and they would cry and, and um, you know, cry out loud and, and that sort of thing. Um, but, but the presence there is also interesting because they, they serve, in a sense, as an objective witness to this miracle. You know, they are there, and the, only, and the reason that they are there is because the girl is dead. They wouldn't be there otherwise. But because she is dead, they are there, and, and they are performing um, the mourning and such as was customary. 
And it says, he said unto them, give place, for the maid is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. So obviously, these professional mourners of Israel were not believers in Jesus as Messiah. And they are there doing their job because the girl is dead. And Jesus commands them to leave the house, telling them that that she's not dead, but she's only sleeping. Now, what is is meant here? Sleep is a common euphemism that is used for death um, in the Bible in different places. And Jesus is using it here to highlight the fact, not that, not that you know, she hadn't ceased breathing or, or such, but he's using it to highlight the fact that he's going to raise her up. Like she's, she's not dead beyond recall or, or something of, of that nature. And sort of he's making a play somewhat on that euphemism. And of course the crowd laughs at him. And the very suggestion that she was merely sleeping, which further, again, serves to prove that she was indeed dead, gives an objective witness to those who were not um, believers in Jesus, who were not followers of, of Jesus, but it again confirms that she was dead, which in turn confirms the miracle that was performed. It says in verse 25, But when the people were put forth, he went in and took her by the hand, and the maid arose. So when they were gone out of the house, he took the girl's hand, and she was restored to life. Now again, we see the power of Jesus. Jesus didn't go in there and invoke any names. He did not go in there and perform any sort of rituals. He did not go in there and repeat any sort of incantations. He simply took her hand as if to raise her up from the bed, and she lived. That was it. His power, once again, brought her to life. Verse 26, and the, fame thereof went, uh, and the fame hereof went abroad into all that land. So Matthew adds that this report of this miracle was circulating throughout the land, meaning that the, the uh, knowledge and the fame of, of Jesus, his popularity is increasing, making the crowds that are following him around only larger. And this se- actually sets up the two happenings that we're going to witness as we go throughout the rest of this passage. And that is, number one, the opposition to Jesus by the Pharisees, and then number two, Jesus' command not to tell about the miracles. And we'll encounter um, each of those when we get to them. So now we go to the next um, episode here, beginning with verse 27, where we have Jesus restoring sight. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. Now, only Matthew has this particular healing, though it is similar to some others. And it's actually similar to a healing that takes place later in Matthew's gospel. But he's the only one that has this particular healing. And there are, um, there are some key differences. But he notes that these two blind men followed Jesus on the road. And of course, the um, irony cannot be lost that these blind men followed Jesus and knew who he was, while the Pharisees um, who listened to him, asked him questions, witnessed his miracles, couldn't see Jesus for who he was. So they followed him on the road, and they kept out crying out for mercy, crying out to Jesus for mercy, And they called him 
the son of David. Now, this is the first time that this title appears in Matthew after the genealogy of, of Matthew 1.1. But it is used several times after this in chapter 9, verse 27. Um, um, that's here in, this, in chapter 12, verse 23, chapter 15, verse 22, chapter 20 in verse 30 and 31, and chapter 21 in verse 9 and verse number 15, used several times after this. Now, son of David is obviously a messianic title and it actually comes from the covenant that God made with David all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter number 7 and so we have looked at 2 Samuel chapter number 7 um, a number of, of different times particularly as we've been going through the psalm study we've seen these promises and we we just um, this past Wednesday looked at the majestic messianic psalm 132 where this reference to this promise that 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 of David's body God was going to raise up um, this king to sit on his throne. So, so that's where this son of David title comes from. It refers to the, the necessary descent from David for the Messiah. Anyone um, that would claim to be the Messiah would have to, to have been descended from David. It's one of the reasons that Matthew starts with the genealogy that he does. The son of Abraham and the son of David, Jesus Christ. Now, verse number 28. And when he was coming to the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this? And they said unto him, Yea, Lord. So the blind men followed him into the house, and Jesus asked them if they believed. And he asked specifically if they believed that he was able to do this miracle that they were requesting. Now, if, if I remember correctly, I don't think at this point we've encountered Jesus um, healing blindness yet, um, but, we, but we do encounter it here. They, and he asks, do you believe that I am able to do this? Now, the, the miracles again in this group, we see that they continue to emphasize faith in Jesus as Messiah. And so they respond positively, yes, and they also call him Lord. Now, sometimes that title, that kurios, it, it can be merely a title of respect, like sir, um, though usually it seems like uh, most of the time that, that I get addressed as sir, it's, it's a title of disrespect that's actually being given to me. But nevertheless, um, a title of, of respect, like sir, it's, it's an acknowledgement. And that word can be used that way. But it also can be used as a divine title. That, that's functionally equivalent to um, Adonai in the Hebrew Old Testament, master, ruler. It's, it's, it's a, a title ascribed to God. And so in this case, given the fact that they've already referred to Jesus as the son of David, it more likely is a messianic title. And we recently considered how that Jesus used the Old Testament to show that the Messiah was David's Lord and David's son. And here again, we see these two brought together in this episode with these blind men. And we'll see it again later um, in Matthew where we encounter that usage we referred to from Psalm 132, verse 29. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. So he touched their eyes and he healed them 
of their blindness. And he states that the healing was a response to their faith. Now, the, the word that's used here, and we see the translation here, according to your faith, makes it sound like to us that this is some sort of proportionality, that, that Jesus performed a, a healing that was in some way proportional to their faith. So, um, you know, if they only believed partway, maybe only one eye would be able to see or, or something like that. I'm not sure exactly sure how that's supposed to work. Um, but that's actually not grammatically what's being stated here. What Jesus is saying is, is that, th- that this healing is in response to their faith. It's, it's, it's like saying, because you have believed, you are made whole. You are healed. You can now see. They appealed, they believed in Jesus as Messiah, as Son of David and Lord, and they appealed to him for mercy. They appealed for mercy. Verse 30, and their eyes were open, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, see that no man know it. So they saw, and Jesus immediately charged them not to tell of the miracle. Now, There is a lot of debate, and there are many opinions about why Jesus would tell them and tell others at different times not to tell anyone about him. And then you can think of times um, like in Mark's account in, in Mark 5 when he casts out the legion of demons. He tells the man to go home and to tell um, his friends and family about Jesus. When he heals the leper there near to Capernaum, he tells him to, to not to tell it, but to first go to the priests and to, to show them for a testimony to them. So there are certain times, it seems, when, when Jesus um, specifically said to tell, many times when he didn't say either way, and then sometimes when Jesus said not to tell. And so why would that be the case? Well, I really believe that one reason why Jesus would do that would have to do with timing, would have to do with the context and the timing. So Jesus had not finished what he came to earth to do. And here we see that in the context, he's in the midst of all these growing crowds that are thronging uh, around him. Um, and and we, we would see uh, in some of the gospel accounts later how they, they would want to take him by force, essentially, and, and make him to be king. And they have, they have not yet rejected him. They don't believe in him. The majority of these crowds do not believe in him. And that's made plain as well, particularly in the account in John chapter number 6. But they would seek to take him by force and to make him a king. Um, and so he has not finished what he came to earth to do. And so Jesus is not, seems to be that he's not trying to add to the reports that are spreading you know, mouth-to-mouth, grassroots, as it were, throughout the region. Now, another reason why, and we see this particularly in the case with the demons, when when Jesus encountered the demons and told them to be silent, when they were speaking and, and, and identifying him and saying who he was, and Jesus tells them to be silent. Now, why did he do that? Well, he did that because devils are not God-authorized evangelists of the Messiah. There was a forerunner that was sent before the Lord Jesus Christ, sent from God, John the Baptist. 
And it's not Satan and his demons that are authorized to go throughout the world or, or anywhere for that matter, speaking of Jesus Christ. Well, that also sort of gives us a tie-in here. These, these blind men, they are not trained and authorized witnesses of the Messiah. And so they are told not to tell. Jesus has called disciples that he has with him, and Matthew keeps noting, and his disciples were with him, and his disciples followed him. And, and you, you think, well, why is he even making note of that? Because they obviously don't seem to be doing anything. I mean, there doesn't seem to be any real significance that he keeps pointing out that the disciples are with him, but it is significant because he has chosen them for this particular work to be his witnesses. And he is teaching and training and preparing them and will authorize them to do this work. And so the word of Jesus was to go out throughout all Israel by his witnesses that he had authorized to do so and not by those that he had not. So we will see actually in the very next chapter where Jesus um, authorizes and sends out his disciples as witnesses. And there's going to be a lot. Again, it's the, it's the next major um, teaching section. And it's going to be all, all having to do with these apostles being sent out as his witnesses, his eyewitnesses. Remember, the disciples were with him. They were with him, and they followed him. And they came in where Jesus and his disciples were. And all that. You, we're going to see that repeatedly throughout this gospel account. Now we come to verse number 31. But they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. So once again, the report of Jesus' miracles spread throughout the region, only adding to the crowds of those that did not believe in him, but were following him, as Jesus would say later, because you've, you've seen the miracles or because you've eaten of the bread. And there, there were many that were following him under those pretenses, but did not really believe in him as the Messiah. So these men did not obey that charge, and I don't really have a good explanation for why that they didn't, but they did not obey that charge, and the, the word got out and spread around anyway. Then we look at the last incident here in this passage, beginning with verse 32, where Jesus restores speech. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil, and when the devil was cast out... Uh, no, let's just stop at 32. And they went out, and behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. Now, the word for dumb here is actually a word that it, it can mean deaf, or it can mean mute, or it could actually mean both, deaf and mute. Now, it's clear that it, at the very least, this man was mute because the healing or the exorcism results in him speaking. So, it certainly seems that we know that much. At least he was... Um, he was mute and not able to speak. Now, Matthew adds that he was possessed by a devil or an evil spirit or a demon or an evil angel or however that, that you want to put it, and they are, they are described several different ways in the Bible. And this being said, along with the healing report, means that the deafness or the muteness or, or whatever all was involved there was actually due to um, the demonic possession of this man. Verse 33, and when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake, and the multitudes marveled, saying, it was never so seen in Israel. So Jesus cast out the demon, and the man spoke. 
And the response is that the crowds were once again astounded. They remarked that such a thing had never been seen in Israel. And that really could be said about much of of the acts of Jesus. And in verse 34, But the Pharisees said, He casteth out devils through the prince of devils. So once again, we see that Jesus' popularity was growing, but it was also growing alongside his opposition. It seems that the Pharisees began to become embittered against him. And here they accuse or explain his working of miracles, even miracles the like that they had never seen or heard of, they attribute that to the power of Satan and not the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is later identified as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is unforgivable. And we'll talk about that when we get there. So we're not going to spend um, time on, on parsing that all out here this evening. But nevertheless, it does highlight the fact that the Pharisees are opposing Jesus. So when we look at this this last group of miracles before we get to this um, larger section as he's instructing and preparing his disciples and authorizing them as his witnesses, we see an emphasis here on messianic signs. And again, we don't get that it was fulfilled according to language. We don't get that fulfillment language here, but we get Jesus being referred to as the son of David and as Lord, which again has heavy significance coming forward from the Old Testament. And the work that he is doing, these are signs of the Messiah. Not only are they signs of the Messiah, but they're also kingdom blessings. They're they're also previews of kingdom blessings. So think about a passage like Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. And these are describing those kingdom blessings, those kingdom conditions, when Messiah comes and sets up his kingdom. So these kingdom blessings are sort of shown here in preview. They are signs of the Messiah. They're they're authenticating that Jesus is who he said he was. He is who John the Baptist said he was. He is who God from heaven said that he was. Um, These are signs of the Messiah, and they are previews of this future messianic kingdom. Now, faith is emphasized as necessary in order to enjoy these kingdom blessings in perpetuity forevermore. Remember that Jesus is also preaching the good news of the kingdom? Matthew hasn't said that for a little while, but he's getting ready to say it again. He has been preaching, as he's been doing all of this, he's been preaching continually the good news of the kingdom. That's the announcement that the kingdom is near because the Messiah has come. In essence, if they would receive him, if Israel would receive him as their Messiah, then that kingdom would be established and they would enter in and they would experience these kingdom blessings. But of course we see, and you might say in some ways, if you didn't know how 
the, the story goes, so to speak, as you're reading along, it might look like that's actually going to be the case. I mean, look at all these great crowds that are following Jesus around, and they want him to be king. But again, the problem is they did not believe in him as Messiah. So Jesus' power, his deity, his identity as the son of David is all signified by these miracles and by these words, all these things that Jesus is doing. And again, in the next section, we're going to get this teaching where he is preparing and authorizing his disciples as his eyewitnesses.